Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Suicide is a major public health problem. It is ranked as the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And according to federal statistics, in the year 2007, there were 34,598 successful suicides. An interesting corollary statistic that in that same year, 2007, there were also an estimated 379,000 suicide attempts, which is 1,038 suicide attempts per day with an additional 95 successful suicides per day. That being said, there is another side to this epidemic, and that is those who succeed or who attempt suicide have families. And all these people have to go through the state of being or living with the loss. We want to look at the emotional response and how things are managed and approached in those tens of thousands of families who every year lose someone because of suicide. Today, joining us is Dr. Gary Thompson, a psychologist in Palm Beach County, and Norman Fine, whose family suffered a suicide about 20, 25 years ago. Both of them are associated with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and their website is www.afsp.org, afsp.org. Thank you both very much for being with us, and thank you especially, Norman, for being willing to share this, uh, how shall I say it, this part of your life. When there is a suicide in a family and the dust begins to settle, what should a person do? Is there one place better than another to start the emotional reorganization that needs to happen in the family? How, how does someone even approach this? Either one of you, please. Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience that it was actually this coming Monday, November 8th, that my son died by suicide 19 years ago. And it was unbelievably shocking. There had been no outward signs of any depression or mental illness. I think part of the reason is that he was married. He was 30 years old at the time. He completed suicide. He had a three-year-old daughter, and it just seemed to come out of the blue. It was just totally amazing. My wife and I were just totally dumbstruck with with the grief. I mean, you go through all kinds of amazing, you know, initially, after you get the call, he was missing, so we didn't know he was, and it was like 12 hours later, we called, we thought maybe he'd been an accident, we called emergency rooms, his wife did not know who he was, he never came home from work, we finally got a call from the police, they had found his body, and it's like, and it's just unbelievable, it's, it's really hard to describe. Initially, it's like, you know you got to deal with things, we had to deal with his wife, his daughter, the in-laws, and, and so you do what you have to do, it's after the funeral, it's the things that had been you knew you had to do is when the shock really sets in. You have feelings of guilt, what could I have done? You have anger, why did he do this? And then you start searching, what didn't we know? Why didn't we know it? And all those things come out. My wife and I actually sought professional help at that time. We went to a psychologist who was really good. It, it doesn't make everything go away. But over a period of time, you get the ability to look introspectively. And you never have all the answers because the individual took the answers with him. But over the passage of time, things will get better. And as a result of this tragedy, my wife became educated in counseling. She became a trained facilitator at one of the local training places, the Center for Group Counseling in Boca Raton. And she did facilitating. And then we were attending a couple of groups as well. And, and, and we took it from that point on. 
that's kind of the basic beginning of the story. One of the things, and I guess Gary would be someone really good to, to pine in on this, but there seems to be a difference in the manner in which one approaches a death. If someone is killed in an accident, you know what caused it. You can blame it on faulty brakes, a drunk driver, whatever. If they die from cancer, you've got something that you can point a finger to. But here you don't know. You really don't know all the details. He took it with him. Gary, from a psychologist's point of view, how do you begin to approach that? How do you begin to deal with the intensity of the um, emotions that come from this and the confusion? What would be a, a beginning point? You know, in the normal stages of grief by Kubler-Ross, it seems most applicable to somebody who's dying themselves or somebody who's gradually losing a loved one. When somebody commits suicide, there was no gradual loss if you didn't see it coming and you're shocked. You didn't have a chance to go through those stages a priori and suicide happens in many different ways. And sometimes people struggle with depression for years before they take their lives. And sometimes it comes, you know, seemingly out of the blue. And when it comes seemingly out of the blue, one of the things that I try to do with patients is point out that there have been patients who looked very well and who reported they were making great progress and who seemed better and seemed like they were coming out of a dark place and told me they were better and, and yet went on to complete suicide. And so if someone trained and someone who works with this on a daily basis has difficulty determining whether or not this person is going to take their lives, how does an individual who's experiencing this maybe for the first time in their own personal lives, how are they supposed to recognize it and prevent it? When people began to know that your son died, Norman, was there a, a sense of the word I'm looking for is actually a stigma or a shame. Did you have to go through a sense of, oh, my goodness, my son died of his own hand? Was that an obstacle that you had to deal with as well? No, um, it, it wasn't actually. One of the things that we did beside private counseling is that we sought out a support group. And actually, my wife, as I mentioned, had been trained as a facilitator. So at one point in time, she actually facilitated when the regular facilitator was out at Compassionate Friends. We did uh, go in there, you know, as Compassionate Friend is an organization that provides um, not counseling, but survivor support of those who've lost their children from any means. And we found that initially to be helpful, but then we ran into an instance where somebody said to my wife at one of the meetings, "Is well, your son wanted to die. And uh, I basically said, no, he didn't want to die. He had a mental illness. He suffered from depression. That is not something that people who are suffering depression basically can't stand to live. It's not that he wanted to die. He had a young girl. He was a great father, spent lots of time with her. And that was the impetus for Joan and I to seek out. And we began the American Foundation for Suicide chapter, which was initially based in Boca Raton, but now covers all Southeast Florida. And my wife has been running a support group for AFSP twice a month at our office location. We now have five support groups between Martin, Palm Beach County, Broward County, and uh, Miami-Dade County. And I, I've learned a lot about how people react to suicide. I, I don't always go to the meetings, but I've gone to so many of them. And it's really amazing how, in addition to, and we always recommend people to get individual care, 
but the support group is totally different when you're dealing with people who all have suffered a loss of a loved one's suicide because there's that bond that's created. And I'd mentioned to Gary sometime, and we went to the individual counselor who was a local person in, in Boca Raton who was really good. And I know that psychiatrists, psychologists really shouldn't be self-disclosing, but this person took it upon herself to say that she had lost a child in a, a suicide attack, it happened to be in Israel, and who was four or five years old. And that immediately created a bridge between Joan and me in the therapist, because that therapist really knew about losing a child, and she was wonderful. And that's the same thing that we find in our support groups, is that, and it's really amazing how many new people are coming in today's environment, financial, and everything else is happening out there, and there's a common thread in that everybody thinks that the anger and the emotional stress and everything they're going through is unique to them, and we tell them it's not. And there are people who have been in that group for months, and many of them feel so bonded to the other people that even though they're getting healthy, they come back to help the newly bereaved, and I think it's just a marvelous, marvelous experience. Just to point out a note here, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is national. And so we're lucky to have them here in South Florida as active as they are. But for those who are elsewhere, please look into the your own regional chapters or there may be other organizations local to wherever one is actually sitting that is an equivalent organization. There's also... Uh, Abby, can, yes. Can I, can I just, if they go onto the website that you mentioned earlier, yes, sir. we have on our website a list of all support groups for suicide whether they're AFSP-sponsored or sponsored by any other organization. So we have a national directory Good. of support groups for people who have lost a loved one to suicide. Okay, so that's important. That's very, very important. Let's quickly jump to something that's happening every year. The Saturday before Thanksgiving every year, there is a National Survivors of Suicide Day, and this touches many families. You put on the website that even Senator Harry Reid, who was just reelected, lost his father to suicide. This is a national uh, podcast that people can get attached to, and on your website is a link to register. This is such an interesting idea because it shares it more globally than just locally. I think it's great. Yes, and, and I think this is the 10th or 12th year that it's happened. Some of the sites that we have, the, the one here in South Florida that we're involved with is at the North Broward Hospital. So we have a local program and local speakers. We've got Dr. Anna Campos from University of Miami Department of Psychiatry is our local speaker. Then we have breakout groups and then the national podcast or webcast takes place for an hour and a half beginning at noontime. When you look over the years that you've worked with this, both um, as a professional, as a volunteer, and as a survivor, what seem to be the biggest mistakes that people make that doesn't really help in the healing process? What are the hurdles that people maybe shy away from? Is there any sense of, again, I'll say it again, any sense of a, of a more common mistake than not? I, I think so. I think it applies not only to the survivor who lost the loved one, but to the friends of that person, it's like a lot of people don't know what to say to a person who's lost a loved one to suicide. And we basically tell these people, or even for the more personal use, I'm really sorry for your, your recent loss. I mean, it's like, I, I know just how you feel. No, you don't, okay? There are some people that just don't want to talk about it. They feel 
ashamed, and there shouldn't be any shame. It's an illness, not a weakness. People die for many reasons, but there had been a stigma. It's a, it's a word you used early on in this conversation, and there really shouldn't be a stigma. We know more about, unfortunately, suicide and the causes of suicide and the complexities of the brain, and there's no question at all that it, the brain is extremely complex. It's probably more complex than supercomputers in terms of the wiring and everything. And sometimes it's not wired exactly correct, or it doesn't move the, the chemicals exactly correctly. So so it's an illness. And, the, and then there's some people who say, I don't want to take medication. Well, if you had, if you had diabetes, you wouldn't say, I don't want to take insulin. So there's more and more awareness of the fact that it's definitely an illness, it's treatable, some people get cancer and they still die, okay? There are some people who have suffered from depression, and with proper treatment and proper therapy, they live a very productive life. And you make an interesting point, or you begin to allude to a very interesting point, that a suicide is not necessarily a failure of the family to properly intervene. And, you know, it touches this, the stigma, which it's better than it was, but it's still around, of mental illness. And, hey, we had mental illness in the family. But it's not the family's fault, per se. No, it's not. And that's an important thing that people have to lay out on the table and say it happened for whatever reasons, but not to to hide because of one's own self-imposed stigma. No, and the other thing is, and and this is kind of interesting, over the years of our involvement at Suicide Foundation, we've gotten to meet some of the outstanding research in the country, and one is Dr. David Brent who has done huge studies on the genetics involving depression, which is obviously suicide is is the end result of untreated or undiagnosed depression, really. Mm -hmm. Suicide is not an illness by itself. It's the result of an illness. It's interesting, and talk to David, he's on our scientific council in New York, and I've been at many meetings with him. He talks about the genetics. And after my son died, my wife, who I'd been married to, at that time for over 40 years, told me that she had had suicide ideation since she'd been a teenager, hmm. and but she had never acted on it. She told me one time, she went to her mom and said, I think I need to go to a psychologist, psychiatrist, and her mom back, you know, many years ago, is, you want to go to a shrink? And she said, never brought it up. But when she goes back in her family history, after the fact, you, you think about these things. Before, you never give it a consideration. Is it her mother, her grandmother, extremely anxious people? So, Michael has the obviously the genetic makeup that induced or had the, the, the ability or the tendency to suffer from depression, and his was not able to be controlled. He kind of went over the deep end. His daughter, who's now 21, is taking medication because she suffers from depression. So now we're totally aware of it, awareness of the family, but there was never that awareness before. We didn't talk about it. Awareness is a wonderful thing, and that's one of the things that we try to do in terms of people getting to understand what potential warning signs are in terms of depression. You know, we could almost change the title of the National Survivors of Suicide Day to National Survivors of an Undertreated or Difficult-to-Treat Disorder Day because the event is resulting from something that's not properly treatable or hard to treat, whatever. It's not necessarily suicide. The, the themes are the same. It's a suicide has this very dramatic and psychiatric flavor to it. But what you say is critical. It's not just psychiatric. It's an illness that's at play. And I think that helps people get over the stigma. I mean, when we discuss this within our support groups for survivors and we say, your son, your spouse, your sibling, they suffered from an illness. 
And and the other thing is, and, and interesting, but many times the issue comes up. They had young children. I had we had that issue with Michael's daughter, who was three at the time. And, and it's amazing; these kids know more than you think they know. Nobody would talk around her about the fact that her father died by suicide. At the appropriate age, we basically. Karen Dunn Maxim has written a wonderful book on how to discuss the issue of suicide with young children. And basically, Karen, in her book, describes it as, you know how people get a heart attack? Daddy had a brain attack. It was an illness. Okay? And it's amazing. When we said this to his daughter, Jackie, when she was maybe five or six years old, she said, mm, I kind of knew that. So you got to be careful. You can't hide it from children because they're going to know. You don't want to make it a scary thing. You want to make it an understandable based on their age and understanding. This is un- unquestionably a, a critical aspect of a um, the approach to a very difficult loss. But what you're describing emphasizes how, how critically important it is not to do it alone, to learn about the realities, to learn from other people what they've done and how they've managed to figure it out and, and restructure their lives and learn from it and get rid of the stigma. This is a very emotionally painful process. Nonetheless, it's a very necessary process. And I, I applaud both of you for your work in trying to help people that have suffered from suicides. Norman Fine and Gary Thompson are two folks who are associated with the Association of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Let me give you that website again. It's www.afsp.org. On that website is a link for the National Survivors of Suicide Day. You can click to it and see what's going on. If you have lost someone by suicide, then please visit these sites, learn from them, and learn how to care on in life as best as one can. Both of you, thank you very much. And Norman, thank you especially so for being so upfront about a very private part of your life. Thank you. Thank, thank you as well. I am a major advocate for suicide prevention, I you can, can tell. I thank can. you very much. You're welcome and have a, have a good day, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Bye now.